Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, I'll be looking at chapters 7, 8, and 9 of A Scanner Darkly. This is part 3 of my of my review of this wonderful uh, Philip Dick novel. Now, in the past two episodes, we were introduced to most of the most of the major characters, pretty much all the major characters of the novel, and the heart of the story revolves this man, Bob Arctor, who is an undercover uh, policeman investigating a a community of drug users who are also his friends. Um, he reports back to the police wearing a scramble suit so no one in the police station knows who he is. Um, he's using drugs heavily to kind of fit in to be part of this this culture. So that's really what it, the, the, the setup of the novel is. Uh, this, uh, as you probably know, is Dick's most actively, openly anti-drug work. We'll talk about the author's proscript probably in part five of this of the series where he he talks about what motivated him to write the novel and in and, and, and how he helped construct the characters the very memorable characters that are in this this novel um in this part of the novel you know in fact in, in seven eight nine we're in the middle of the novel and it's really we're, we're going to start to experience a transition in bob arctor's mind and really what starts to really set this off um or clarify it certainly there's been things in his mind changing him from the earliest from the time we first meet him but in the middle part of the novel something really accelerates this this uh, drug-induced mental debilitation and that is when he installed had camp well the police installed cameras into the house that they're investigating so now much of bob archer's job is to go to this nearby house where he's going to view the tapes view the tapes of the scanner that's where the title of the of the book comes from it's a the idea of uh, the surveillance on this house combined with, uh, you know, if you see through glass darkly uh, or, or, or not. I forget what it is. Well, oh, oh, I just looked it up here. Uh, for now, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, I know in part that I shall know even as I am known. So uh, Dick just uses kind of the surveillance technology to kind of clarify that, that, that biblical quote. Um, but now that they've installed this, Bob Archer's going to have to watch it. And he's going to be watching himself, you know, living his life in this house with these other drug users, having the conversations, experiencing his friendship almost from the perspective of a third person. And anyone who's, like, listened to their own voice on recording or even seen maybe pictures of themselves and are like, I don't really look like that or, or that's not how I see myself, you know, you have that... that that feeling of, of there seems to be a separation between how you are proje projected to outsiders and how you see yourself. Um, very, very common experience. But it goes beyond that because Bob Arctor is taking the, these drugs um, repeatedly. And we're gonna, we start to hear about the impact of these drugs on people in, in Chapter 7. So, so let's just jump into Chapter 7 and see where this, this novel takes us. Um, so in Chapter 7... Um, Bob Arctor is in a scramble suit, so he's known as Fred. And as this novel goes on, it's more and more important to distinguish Bob Arctor from Fred. Um, early in the novel, they're essentially the same person, and Bob Arctor in the scramble suit is aware of who he is, 
even though the outside world calls him just Fred. Um, but after the midpoint in the novel, it starts to become less clear that he's he fully understands who is Fred and who is Bob Arctor. So, the, but as chapter seven opens, he's being debriefed on on the, basically the process, the practice of what's going to happen now that these scanners are set up in in the house, and there's there's six of them, so there's six cameras going on, playing constantly. Now his job is then to, and he's this is all explained to him by. Hank, who's his supervisor, also in a scramble suit, so we don't know his identity. And he, basically what is, what's being explained to him and, and explained to us is his job is going to be to kind of, you know, s- look at the surveillance and then prepare surveillance for the higher-ups. But he's going to have to, like, edit himself out of certain circumstances where he's going to be, like, maybe f- moving the cameras or touching the cameras because then it would identify to the police department who the undercover detective is. Now, why is that such a problem? Well, as I explained in the previous episode, the problem is that the police department is thoroughly corrupt and and his name would get out. And uh, and again, we get this idea that there's this very incestual relationship between the police and the drug dealers. So anything the drug dealers know, or anything the police know, the drug dealers will certainly know. So that's why the scanner suits are such an important technology in this novel. It also really clarifies this, um, you know, Bob Archer's loss of his mind and identity while he takes more and more of these drugs. So he's going to have to... But first, Bob Arctor, Fred, we should say Fred, has to edit out those sections of uh, of the film, but also edit out other scenes that may reveal himself. But he can't edit himself out completely because if he edits himself out entirely, then the higher-up would then say, obviously, the undercover detective is this guy, right? Because at this time, Hank doesn't know, right? Saying you could be anyone. You could be Barris. You could be Ernie Luckman. You could be Donna Hawthorne. You could be Freck. You could be Bob Arctor. I don't know. It seems at this point he's being told that Bob Arctor is the main target of, of this investigation Who, because he's a he's a drug dealer. The The two main dealers seem to be Donna and, and Bob Arctor. And the police seem to be focusing on Bob Arctor at this point. You know, the idea... Those, the At this point, the, the investigation seems to be just a regular kind of... you. You catch a dealer, you flip them to get the higher up. It, it turns out to be more complicated than that. But that's that's what it seems to be about at this point. So he's, he's ordered to basically edit himself out modestly and creatively. Uh, after this briefing, he's told he has to go essentially report to the... to the... to room 203 where the psych people live. Because the police department has so many undercover detectives who are using this drug substance D, which does have psychological, psychedelic consequences and, and long-term effects on people's psychology, they do have these psychiatrists on, on staff. And so he has to go over to this room 203 to talk to these um, two psychiatrists. And he goes in the scramble suit to have the conversation with them. And they um, and they explain, well, they clarify, do you take substance D? Of course, he has to as part of his, his job. And, and he's become addicted to to them, although he doesn't really admit he's addicted yet, he's just using a lot of it. And they're warning him; they warn him about the addictive nature of substance D. But then they warn him more broadly about some of the the, the physiological and the mental consequences of long-term use of substance D. And here's what's explained to them: in many of those taking substance D, a split between the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere of the brain occurs. There's a loss of proper gestalting, which is a defect both within the precept and the cognitive systems. Although apparently the cognitive system continues to function normally, but what is now received from the precept system is contaminated by being split. So it too, 
therefore fall, fails gradually to function, progressively deteriorating. Have you located the familiar object in this line drawing? Can you find it for me? End quote. Now that last part is because they're, they're actually testing him with, you know, like Rorschach kind of tests to, to see if he's already experiencing some of uh, the damage. He, he asks if this damage is permanent, and, the, and they say, well, maybe, maybe not. It may, it, it, it may or may not be permanent. And then they warn him that you might hear cross-chatter because one half of the brain is more for mortal control and one hemisphere of the brain is more for speech. So you're going to get a discontinuity between speech and, and like mobility and things like that. So the, the world's going to seem kind of out, of out of phase or out of sync or there'll be what's called cross-chatter here. Um, now they think he's already having problems and, and what they do is they actually pull up some a conversation from the scanners which which um, show all these people who've been using a lot of drugs. I think, I think it's, it's Donna, Barris, Freck, Arcturus there, Luckman. All the major characters are, are in this room together. And Barris is talking about this, this bike he bought. And this bike he bought from some black people. And there's some unfortunate racist language in this, this passage. Um, but, um, but anyways... Uh, they have a talk conversation about buying this bike cheap. It's a ten-speed bike for twenty dollars, right? And then they start looking at the bike, and I, one of the characters, well, first Donna says like it might be stolen. You should ask around to see if it's stolen. Bears refuses to do that, saying it's a man's bike. But Freck is the one who says, "Why do you say it's ten-speed when it only has seven gears?" And then everyone looks at it and sees what Freck sees, that there's only seven gears. Now, obviously, what's happening here is that on a 10-speed bike, you have two gears in front and five in the back, right? And that's how you get the, the ten, 10 gears. You multiply them, right? But they, they, they somehow don't connect that, see them as distinct. Each one is a distinct gear, seven of them, and think they've been ripped off. So they actually take it to the person who sold it, to uh, this young black man. And, and this is all still on the scanners, too. Seems because it's all recorded here in a kind of transcript format, and then he very quickly explains why this is still a ten-speed bike, although it only you know has these seven gears, and they're still really confused by it, all of them, and this then becomes evidence for the the psychiatrist that the people using substance D in this group, including Bob Arctor, are already beginning to lose some of their ability to connect fully with reality. They say, "We know you were one of the people in that group." It doesn't matter which one. None of you could look at that bike and perceive the simple mathematical operation involved in determining the number of its very small system of gear ratios. An operation like that constitutes a junior high school aptitude test. Were you all stoned? No, Fred said. They give aptitude tests like this to children, the other medical deputy said. So what's wrong, Fred? The first deputy asked. I forgot, Fred said. Now shut up. And then he said, it sounds to me like a cognitive fuck-up rather than perceptive. Is it abstract thinking involved in a thing like that? You might imagine so, the seated deputy said, but tests show that the cognitive system fails because it isn't accurately receiving data. In other words, the inputs are distorting in such a fashion that when you go to reason about what you, you reason wrongly because you don't. Um, and so Fred's trying to explain why they thought this way, but it's obvious that, that these characters were incredibly confused by this very, very simple bicycle design. Now this chapter ends with a bit of foreshadowing and it's going to be hard to talk about this without spoiling the rest of the novel but hopefully you've already read this novel and you know what's going to happen. Um, 
he's leaving this conversation in a scramble suit and he has these thoughts. Spring flowers, he thought as he reached the elevator. Little ones. They probably grow close to the ground and a lot of people step on them. Do they grow wild or in a special commercial vats or in enclosed farms? I wonder what the country is like. The fields and like that. The strange smells. And he wondered, where do you find that? Where do you go and how do you get there and stay there? What kind of trip is that? And what kind of ticket does it take? And who do you buy the ticket from? And he thought, I would like to take someone with me when I go there. Maybe Donna. But how do you ask that? Ask a chick that when you don't even know how to get next to her. When you've been scheming on her and achieving nothing. Not even one step. We should hurry, he thought. Because later on, all spring flowers like they told me about will be dead. Now, he's thinking about flowers. And this is going to foreshadow the final this foreshadows the final scene of the novel where Arctur in another identity now because he's completely burned out on drugs in a at the new life rehab facility is working on a farm kind of away from the main facility that's actually producing these flowers that become the core ingredients of substance D so these burnt out addicts are then creating the basically making the drugs for the next generation that's what we learn and the final scene is him seeing these seeing these flowers on the ground right we also learned by the end of the novel that this entire investigation was set up to basically destroy bob arthur's mind so he would be sent so a police officer could get inside uh, the the production facilities of run by the new life rehab center because they have suspicions of it um and it's it's possible here that the because he was why was he thinking of flowers was because these um different deputies and people he was talking to men one of the mentions that you can get little spring flowers and he kind of plants it in his head so maybe it was planting a seed of you know look for flowers or something but um it's all i'll talk more about this in the final final episode where we get to this scene of of what what his role becomes at that at that clinic or at that rehab facility but that's chapter seven so mostly it's it's about the this this the, the, the fate of the, the, the fact that there's scanners in the house now and how, how Bob Arctor Fred is going to manage that and, and reporting to the police. And then the rest of it is about this introducing the, the long-term impact of use of substance D on, on, on these addicts and how it does lead to the splitting of the mind and the breaking down of the gestalt between the right and left hemispheres of the brain. So it's chapter 8 opens where we're introduced again to to charles freck who is trying to get back at barris um for basically making fun of him in an earlier scene and his plan it's, it's pretty bad it, it's to um to tell him that he bought a methadrine plant and then it seems try to use that to like to extort some money or to get some money from from barris and the others but it, it's kind of funny because it, it when Freck's thinking about how he's going to explain this, when he says a methadrine plant, he knows Barris means he's going to respond that methadrine's a manufactured uh, substance. It's made synthetically in a lab. It's not organic. And of course, Freck is trying to communicate that he's bought a factory um, that that makes methadrine. And he eventually gives up on the on the scam, but because he was start, he didn't really think it through. And and you know all these characters are a bit burned out and. And, and losing their mind and have weird ideas and and uh, that's part of the fun of the novel but also um i think for dick some of the tragedy of the novel too is these these people are really losing their grip of reality now most of this scene is is barris muckman and arctor you know working on the car um together 
and their car had a malfunction in an earlier early chapter, so it's, it's partially a response to that. And this is followed by various scenes of them just hanging out, right? And these are some of the... In fact, most of Chapter 8 is just involving these characters just doing, living their life. And sometimes Fred is watching from like, the, the tapes, and sometimes you know Bob Arctor is there, and it kind of goes back and forth. And it's, it's all about that. But mostly these are kind of weird little vignettes of life in, the, in this house. And one of them involves, for instance, them gossiping about Donna Hawthorne, uh, about how... You know, she one she's trying to like how how she's suing someone for for scamming her on a on a on a drug deal, and there remains how can you sue someone for that and 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 how Don is able to do that. And another scene where she was at a stamp machine and it accidentally released thousands of these stamps, and they she took these stamps but she couldn't find a way to profit from them. So she how the rumor was that she stole a stamp machine. And then put it in out of place when he started selling the stamps to people taking the money. And then when the stamps ran out, transforming the thing into a into a coke, coke dispensary. It sounds pretty ridiculous, the story, but these are the kinds of things they these characters talk about. Now this talking about Donna having this kind of shady side uh, leads Bob Arctor to begin to, to be scared about his job as, as Fred viewing these tapes. Because Donna's going to be there a lot and he thinks this. Quote, and then a dreadful, ugly thought rose in him. Suppose when I play the tapes back, I see Donna when she's here, opening a window with a spoon or knife blade and slipping and destroying my possessions and stealing. Another Donna, the chick that she really is, or anyhow, as she is when I can't see her. The philosophical when a tree falls in the forest number. Where is Donna, what, what is Donna like when no one is around to watch her? Does, he wondered, the gentle, lovely, shrew, and very kind, super kind girl transform herself instantly into something sly will i see a change which will blow my mind donna or luckman anyone i care about like your pet cat or dog when you're out in your house the cat empties a pillowcase and starts stuffing your valuables in it electric clock and bedside radio shaver all can stuff in before you get back another cat entirely where you're going ripping you off pointing it all and lighting up your joints or walking on the ceiling or phoning long distance god knows a nightmare a weird other world behind the mirror a terror city reverse thing with unrecognizable entities creeping about Donna crawling on all fours, eating from the animal dishes. A kind of psychedelic wild trip, unfathomable and horrid. Um, great stuff. Uh, all about the, the kind of the bizarreness of watching people you know in private life on a, on a television screen. You know, it's, it's weird. It's, it's, it's very much like that experience of, you know, hearing yourself on, um, hearing a recording of your own voice. But even more deeper, the fear of, of seeing people you know, as they, as they really are. Right. And I think there's a, an ongoing fear in, in Dick's fiction about relationships, how you really don't fully know the people you're with, or there's aspects of them that are hidden to you until you get to know them more. And sometimes you never can fully, fully know them. So I think it's one reason Dick's interested in mental illness, because it, it is something that's often kind of under the surface and hidden about people's identity. They, they people don't even know it themselves. Or, you know, people near them don't don't know it. Um, so he thinks a lot about just the whole act of being filmed, what being filmed is like, and, and the oddity of it all. And he's kind of freaked out by this whole job he has of, of, of kind of observing his own life um, via, the, via the scanner tapes. And we get a little bit of insight into Barris through Arctor's mind when he tries to borrow Barris's car to slip away. He's, he's actually going to go and look at the tapes, I think, but... He's, he tries to get away. He tries to borrow Barris's car, and, and Barris doesn't like to do that. And then there's a conversation about 
in, in Arctur's mind about how Barris is constantly modifying his car and putting all these changes into it, or at least Barris says he does, or perhaps exaggerates um, about it. For instance, so um, this is what we get. Uh, Barris had secret unspecified modifications done on it in its A suspension, B engine, C transmission, D rear end, E drivetrain, F electrical system, G front end steering, H as well as clock, cigarette lighter, ashtray, glove compartment. In particular, the glove compartment. Bears kept it locked always. The radio too had been currently changed. If you turned one station, you only got one minute apart blips. All the push buttons brought on the same transmission that made no sense, and oddly, there was never any rock played over it. Sometimes when they were accompanying Bears on a buy or Bears parking out of the car leaving them, he turned on the particular station in on a special fashion very loud. If they changed while they were gone, he became incoherent and refused to speak on the trip or ever to explain. He had not explained yet. Probably when set to that frequency, his radio transmitted A to the authorities, B to a private paramilitary political organization, C to the syndicate, or D to extraterrestrials of higher intelligence. End quote. The point here is there's really something off about Barris. Barris is very paranoid about Bob Arctor and the other people he's living with, and Arctor here, at least on some level, is aware that there's some weird loyalty or agenda that Barris is involved in. It might just be his weirdness comes from his drug use and his paranoia about about the police and all that, but there does seem to be something deeper uh, here. So anyways, Fred goes to view these tapes uh, and he's going and he's viewing them and he sees Barris and Luckman together and Barris is just there. Well, I think Luckman's like eating chicken, TV dinner, watching TV and Barris is with his hash pipe putting together something he's working on throughout the novel actually and while this is going on suddenly Luckman starts to choke and Barris just continues to work and after a while he goes to the phone and asks for help claiming it's it's a, a cardiac arrest not a choking and then when they ask for his address he doesn't give it because I think his paranoia kicks in and he just stands there and then Luckman coughs out whatever he was choking on and Barris just hangs up the phone on them and this what really is shocking from Fred's point of view watching this is just how indifferent Barris is to the to the death of his good friend it's it's implied in the text that Luckman and Bob Arctor are very very good friends and that Bob Arctor cares a lot for Luckman much more so than than Barris or, or some of the other people who come come through when Luckman confronts Barris on his lack of action during this choking uh, Bears just makes some really weird comment about how unfortunate it is that humans have to share the same opening for food and air, and this just leads Luckman to to be disgusted with uh, with with Bears. Another, yet another character finding that Bears is weird and disgusting and uh, not a not a very good friend. Driving around later, Bob Arctor runs into Donna, picks her up, and they they go back to her place where they're going to party essentially watch movies take some death or whatever they have a fun little conversation about coca-cola uh, during this where bob arctor remembers sometime that donna ripped off um a truckload of coca-cola and and she says the coca-cola company is a capitalist monopoly no one else can make coke but them like the phone company does when you want to phone someone they're all capitalist monopolies do you know that the formula for Coca-Cola is a carefully guarded secret handed down through the ages, known only to a few persons, all in the same family, and when the last one of them dies, that memorized the formula to be no more Coke? So there's a backup written formula in a safe somewhere. I wonder where. Well, this is exactly the case with Substance D, as we'll learn. So um, 
it's not something you'll notice until you read this novel, you know, through for a second time. But this is exactly the situation of substance D. So again, I'm, I'm wondering if if some of these people who are kind of on the police side of things and and know the full story, like like it turns out Donna is, if they're you know planting seeds in in these characters' minds, you know, in Bob Arctor's mind, trying to, you know, about the secret formula, about the flowers or, or other things. There, there's, it seems to me there's, there's evidence of, of, of little hints being planted that are trying to get into his mind that, that maybe will be able to be recalled later on. But the, the similarities between this conversation about Coca-Cola and the reality of Substance D is, is interesting to me. Anyways, they just continue, you know, talking, chit-chatting and, and, and taking some death and then Bob Arctor confesses that he loves Donna and she her response is yeah I can dig it you being in love with me yeah, that's all and then she smokes starts smoking some weed and that's the whole chapter it's 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 a relatively long chapter covering a lot of different characters and it's um, now throughout this chapter you know whatever we were warned in chapter 7 that D will eventually split the hemispheres of the brain and cause this kind of neural aphasia, as it's called in the novel. Uh, that doesn't seem to be happening to extreme extent yet in, in Bob's case. There might be little hints of it here and there, but he still knows who he is. He doesn't have this conflict between Fred and Bob Arctor really yet. Um, he's still aware when he's seeing this. He sees, when he looks at the scanners and the tapes, he thinks it's weird. Yeah, um, you know, he sees characters in new ways. He sees friends in new ways. And then it's something he worried about, right? He was worried about seeing Donna in new ways, and he sees just how bad Barris is, for instance. But he's he's anxious about this, but it's, he's not yet disconnected from reality. We'll see that in the next episode, where he really starts to lose um, any any grasp of, of, of who he is, and, and who you know Fred starts not being aware that Bob Arctor is is, is the same person. Um, and then we got this nice scene of of. Of Bob Arctor and Donna connecting, their relationship is not sexual, never becomes sexual, but it's it, it's kind of sweet, and it's you know it's people who care about each other partying together. Chapter nine picks up right where chapter eight left off, or you know like some some time passes, and they're talking about cats, and they're they're kind of high there, and you know when she thinks about cats, this is how she describes them. I love this description of of cats, drippy little things moving around about a foot above the ground. Um, and then he brings up spring flowers and she says, yeah, I can dig it. Little spring flowers with yellow in them that come up, that, the, that first come up. So I don't know. Again, maybe she's, she's dropping a hint about the flowers that are going to be important in the very end of the novel. Now he makes it, makes a bit of a move for her sexually and, and she resists saying, calling him ugly. And then this really offends Bob Arctor and he gets, he gets kind of pissed off about her about this. And she explains, you know, I just don't want people groping my body. I have to watch out there because I do so much coke. Someday I have a plan that I'm going over to the Canadian border with four pounds of coke in my snatch. I'll say I'm a Catholic and a virgin. And so her, she, she suggests she has to stay a virgin because of this plan, which is going to involve her smuggling in, in coke through her vagina. And she's going to use her virginity as an excuse not to, I guess, get investigated by the police. That sounds like it's a plan. I don't know if it's a, it's a good one, but that's the stated reason why she can't have sex with with Arctor. they they argue a bit but donna's perspective here is very interesting it seems to me the way donna talks about drug use and her life at this time is very much how dick experienced many people talking about the drug culture and when you read his author's note at the end of the novel where he kind of condemns this whole culture that he was a part of 
and, and maybe even celebrate it early in his life. He talks about it as, as plain, right? As plain when people, you know, plain in the streets is how he compares uh, drug use. Playing with the street while people around you are being hit by cars but continuing to play. But Donnie here talks about drug use as, as a kind of a play now because you won't live later. She says, you take substance D. So what? What's the difference now? I'm happy. Aren't you happy? I get to come home and smoke high-grade hash every night. It's my trip. Don't try to change me. Don't ever try to change me. Me or my morals. I am what I am, and I get off on hash. It's my life. I don't expect to live long. So what? I don't want to be around long. Do you? Why? What's in this world? And have you seen it? Shit, what about Jerry Fabin? Look at someone too far into substance D. Where, where is that really in the world, Bob? It's a stepping place in the next, where they're going to punish us because we were born evil. We are punished here, so if we can get off on a trip now and then, fuck it, do it. The other day I almost crashed in driving my MG to work. I had an 8-track stereo on and I was smoking my hash pipe and I didn't see this old dude in an 84 Ford Imperator. I I am and know I'm going to die early. Anyhow, what I do, probably on the... Fr- you know. And then she goes on talking about her driving, her bad driving habits. But her point here is just sort of live, live now, live in, live in the moment. And I just think he must have heard people talk, or he maybe he himself talked about the drug use in, in that way. Especially when you read that after note, you, he, where he suggests basically this is all drawn from life. Um, so failing with, with Donna, Bob Arctor picks up a girl named Connie, a, a quote-unquote needle freak, who we basically gives her some drugs in, in exchange for having sex with her. And it's a pretty, well, it's, well, it's not Bob Arctor at his best moment anyways. And um, after Connie goes to sleep and he's in bed, he's, he's watching her and he sees her transform into Donna and back to Connie and back to Donna again. And, and that's the end of the chapter. Um, in hindsight, it seems here's where he really starts to, to maybe lose some grasp of reality. And that'll be really clear in chapters 10, 11, and 12, which is what we'll look at in the in the next episode. So those are my thoughts on chapters uh, 7, 8, 9 of A, a Scanner Darkly. Um, not too much happens. It's, it's mostly about how he's going to be using the scanner. It's about the danger of using substance D. And then we get these prolonged scenes of just these drug addicts kind of living together and and being observed by by um by fred and then these rather touching scenes of of donna and and bob arctor partying together um so it's i think thematically there's a lot here about just representation and how in how one experiences life via screens or being via surveillance it's not something I thought that much about. I tend to think of surveillance more in terms of, of, of the power of the state, right? And I, and I think that's how Dick thought about surveillance for much of his career, too. He was interested in the power of the state or big data or, or control mechanisms and that kind of stuff. But here he's actually getting into some the philosophy of, of life via the screen, right? You see people in ways you, didn't, you don't see them. when you, know, you think you see someone straight up honestly but it's not an honest portrayal of them is it they're wearing all these masks they're they're dressed up for you maybe they they you know they they speak in a certain way to you they're not being truthful it's only when you 
see them through the surveillance camera that you see them as they are you potentially see them as they really are and that's his fear about Donna right so anyway some, some fun, fun stuff even though it's a little bit of, of a slower section of the novel so in the next chapter in the next episode we'll look at chapters 10 11, yeah 10 11 and 12 um, and, and we'll see what happens to to Bob Arctor as his his drug use continues his his surveillance of himself expands and and we'll see where the plot takes us so um let me know if there's anything in these sections of the novel or in a scanner dark overall that you want to comment on you can just leave a comment below or send me an email at 100 pagescast at gmail.com uh thanks for always for listening and i'll, I'll see you next time to feel these changes to